פרודיוסט ביי פי.איי מידיה. Abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing, yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics, and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan, and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. I think the initial idea of water sector reform was that it was a space best left to government to handle. And now increasingly governments around the world are recognizing that water is too big a challenge for government to solve alone. Capital expenditure for water is often expensive and difficult to recover based on the sales of water because the tariffs are not very high. You need to find innovative financing mechanisms where you can have, for example, public money financing the CAPEX and then private money financing the operation expenses. Communities have faced numerous problems. No single organization can just come in and solve them all. When we went to those communities and they say, we make $10. The water tank comes and they want $3, $4. We cannot pay for that. If a community wants to develop, wants to take the next step, it has to have access to water. If communities have access to electricity, water and communications, they are ready to be unleashed. The theme of the 8th World Water Forum that convened in Brasilia in March of 2018 was sharing water. But what does sharing water actually mean? If you focus on the notion that water knows no boundaries, I'm sure that sharing water for you is all about maintaining healthy watersheds and allowing for the natural flow of water across political borders. However, it can also mean the allocation of resources for both households and agriculture. And what about the food and beverage industry? And their need for water to create the food we consume. Who, then, is sharing with whom? We can create a list of users with conflicting needs and agendas. Communities versus goods manufacturers. Healthcare versus ore mining industries. Mother Nature and the animal kingdom versus us, humans. The thing is, there is a stark difference between water as a substance, a basic human need and right, and water as a service. Where this precious matter becomes a commodity, an element in global economy with specific regulations, market value and practices. The World Bank's figures are clear. Today, 2.1 billion people worldwide lack access to safely managed drinking water services, 844 million of which don't even have the most basic drinking water service. The world's population is on the rise, as well as living standards, In developing countries with higher standards there comes higher water consumption the voices you'll hear today are people who took part in the eighth world water forum 
My name is Rochi Khemka. I'm co-lead Global Partnerships and India program for the 2030 Water Resources Group, which is a global public-private civil society initiative hosted by the World Bank. It sounds to me that um, the good guys are trying to team up with the bad guys. There are no bad guys, actually, if you look at it objectively, uh, mm -hmm. because it's a space where you need everybody to come together and work in tandem. So it's really uh, you know, about fostering collaboration and partnerships across different stakeholders. But that wasn't the case up until several years ago, at least according to some stakeholders. That's true. I think the initial idea of water sector reform was that it was a space best left to government to handle. And now increasingly governments around the world are recognizing that water is too big a challenge for government to solve alone. You really do need partnerships to be developed with private sector, with civil society. Uh, you need new, new models of innovation, new financing mechanisms, more programmatic approaches, demonstration projects, PPP solutions, all of which require some form of partnership between stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And where there has been collaboration, the results have been quite staggering. PPP, public-private partnerships, is where the public sector, meaning mainly governments and their agencies, join forces with the private sector, roughly speaking, the rest of the financial players in a given economy. The way in which these partnerships work vary. It is a modular approach to project financing and operation. For example, one project's design and financing will be done by the public sector and construction by a private company, while a different project will be designed, financed and constructed by private companies, whereas the operation and maintenance will be carried out by a governmental agency. This adaptable construct can enable solutions which are suitable for the community in which they are designed to operate in. Rochi Kemka through PPPs for wastewater treatment in the Ganga Basin, we've been trying to bring private sector solutions to wastewater treatment uh, for one of the largest basins in India and around the world. So it's home to 450 million people. So the challenge is not small. And the government had been putting in a lot of money into wastewater treatment for this particular basin over the years. But they faced the bottleneck of not having uh, sustainable infrastructure uh, and operational infrastructure. So they felt that there was a need to bring in private sector expertise in technology, in delivery, in sustained operations and maintenance of assets that have been created. And so through that work, it led to PPPs being launched, public-private partnerships, with leading companies to be able to create these assets and then maintain them over a period of time. And so... The notion of sharing water is broader than just sharing the substance itself. It means sharing practices, know-how, technology, governance models, engineering solutions, cybersecurity. In problems. short, sharing knowledge and expertise. Oded Distel, head of Israel Newtech. As part of the Ganga cleaning mission, we see a lot of Israeli companies that have great technologies to offer and some projects are already in progress. And as Israel, we team up with the WRG 2030 program. What Israel can bring to the game is the concept of a holistic approach to water management that includes all stakeholders in uh, achieving a sustainable and uh, long-term progress in this arena. This is the way the water uh, sector is being managed in Israel for many years. 
and we are sharing this type of uh, philosophy with companies and with the uh, partners around the world the desired ROI meaning return on investment can vary and the sharpest contrast is between the public and And private sectors while private companies ROI is more often than not just a line preferably written in black rather than in red governments ROIs are markedly different measured over decades a nation's ROI is not the number of gold ingots kept in the vaults of a central bank just think of a public health indicator such as infant and child mortality and Investing money in water and sanitation will bring the rates of infants deaths down and will improve economic outcome which in turn will bring with it a higher standard of living so we are talking about money however put plainly a society that has access to suitable water and sanitation infrastructure is more likely to thrive and progress than one whose systems are lacking in A research done by the World Bank in 2008 showed that in Cambodia, for instance, the cost of poor sanitation systems, or the lack thereof altogether, meant a loss of 448 million US dollars in 2005 alone. That's equivalent to more than 7% of the country's GDP. In 2007, the World Health Organization demonstrated that for each US dollar invested in water and sanitation, the average ROI worldwide will be 8.1 US dollars. It varies from 5.4 dollars in Arab countries to 35.9 dollars in Latin America and the Caribbean. And yet, water and sanitation solutions aren't necessarily cheap. Here's Brio Michaud. a managing partner at Waterpreneurs. Financing water, maybe large or small-scale infrastructure, is still financing CAPEX. Capital expenditure for water is, uh, is often expensive and uh, difficult to recover based on the sales of water because the tariffs are not very high. You need to find innovative financing mechanisms where you can have, for example, public money financing the CAPEX and then private money financing the operation expenses. This can exist. It's called blended finance. And this is the kind of models we are exploring with waterpreneurs to help flow finance to all these entrepreneurs. Waterpreneurs is a global for-impact organization, as they put it, supporting the scaling up of impact investments financing the growth of water, sanitation and hygiene enterprises operating in developing countries, and they find and support local entrepreneurs. An entrepreneur is a classic private sector player that, But as mentioned before, an entrepreneur, as much as he or she might be driven by doing good and helping others by providing an ingenious solution, will need to feed themselves at the end of the day. As a rule of thumb, water tariffs act both as a mechanism that ensures the upkeep of a system as well as a psychological vehicle that indicates that water has value just like any other item of sustenance. However, More often than not, tariffs aren't reflecting the real cost for better or worse. The question of tariff is yes, is, is crucial in, uh, in water entrepreneurship. 
the entry point for us is um, the human right to water and sanitation and the respect of the human right to water and sanitation for the service provider. Meaning that when we look at an entrepreneur, we first make sure that um, this entrepreneur respects certain criteria and guidelines uh, that are the one illustrated by the human right to water. There are basically 10 criteria, among, among which one is affordability, which says that basically water should be affordable for all, which doesn't mean free. It means that water shouldn't exceed more than 3% of their household income. Water is a public issue, right? So it's a matter of the local government and the local public authorities to make sure that they have policies in place so that people can afford the water. It can go through subsidies or it can go through different systems, different mechanisms. So what does a nice French boy from uh, central uh, France does in Central Africa? Not much. Um, I don't go to Central Africa except for looking at what happens. But uh, we rely on local partners. I connect with people who work in Central Africa and who know the context. I don't know the context in Central Africa. I mean, I have an idea, but I will never know the, the details and the relationship between the people and, and what makes the economy work and what makes the politics work and what makes the water system work or not. So I have connections with networks of organizations that operate in these countries and that can either source entrepreneurs for me, meaning bring me some entrepreneurs that are doing um, projects and great things, either monitor their activities. I like to talk about peer-to-peer -peer due diligence, meaning that you have locally, for example, an NGO who can say, yeah, this entrepreneur is doing a great job. He's selling good water, good quality, and at an affordable price without discrimination. Our focus is mainly on these entrepreneurs that are in-country, um, that have the solutions locally, and that develops business models locally. We also have, as part of our portfolio, um, some entrepreneurs that come from Europe, from the United States, or from any other countries, and operate, uh, have local operations with local entities, but often the head office is in, is in Europe or in, in the United States. At the end of the day, it's local people uh, doing local business. Why is that so important? Appropriation, sustainability. We, we've seen north-south solutions don't last and are often not very efficient. And there is a question of making sure that the local people like the solutions that are offered to them. And it's always better if someone who knows the local context and the local culture and the local economy and local politics can provide a solution that fits this local context. Back to Rochi Kemka from the World Bank. So you as the World Bank, you are the facilitator, you come in with solutions, you come in with notions, or you come in and say, okay, we will enable a process of delegating responsibilities between stakeholders, and at the end of the day, come back, show us your solution, and we'll say, okay, we will be able to help you here with an X amount of money. What is your role? So as the 2030 Water Resources Group, uh, the best way to put it is, We act as a catalyst and a convener. So we're, we're in the space of disruption. So we want new solutions to be developed. And we do that through the establishment of multi-stakeholder platforms. So these platforms have participation from government, private sector, and civil society, as well as academia. So everyone sits around the table to address the issues, uh, to identify the solution space, um, and you know, what, is it, what does it take to implement 
um, and then we support the process through uh, technical assessments, uh, you know, through identification of financing mechanisms where there is a need for policy reform um, or uh, regulatory improvement. Um, then we identify, um, you know, solutions in that regard, uh, as well as the design of either large-scale programs or demonstration projects, uh, as the case may be. And if one stakeholder says, "I'm not going anywhere. This is what I'm willing to do, and that's it. Deal with it. The rest of the roundtable." Can you put any sanctions? So, so you know, we, we look at it more from a positive perspective in how do you create an environment where stakeholders want to come together? Um, and, you know, it's not really about sanctions and, and regulation to, to exclude. Where there is a non-willingness to engage, there is usually a rationale behind it. So we try to get to the reason for why a stakeholder is unable to implement. Because if it makes perfect logical sense to undertake a certain action, it would be done. So there must be some barriers along the way, and we try and identify those barriers and then design engagements which address the bottlenecks. We've been engaging on programs for integrated micro-irrigation. This is basically a program where uh, you have bulk water supply for irrigation, which is linked to micro-irrigation at the farm level. Uh, so it's on-farm water use efficiency, which is built into the model. The resistance here, which we were seeing, was from farmers to adopt you know, new infrastructure. Also, you know, to switch to crops that made sense, which were less water intensive, but more remunerative. And so, you know, it was a process of dialogue, engagement with different sides, with different stakeholders. And now we're seeing that farmers are quite willing to adopt new cropping systems, which work with the infrastructure, as well as offer better uh, income opportunities to them. It's just a, a matter of awareness building, uh, engaging with the stakeholders, as opposed to trying to retrofit uh, an idea to a particular system, uh, which we find usually doesn't work. So if you're trying to come with, you know, to define a solution uh, from another context, you find resistance. But if you're able to connect with stakeholders, involve them in the process, build trust, uh, which is very important, usually you see good results. Problem is, not always people understand what it means. Andre Vongchovsky is the operations manager at World Transforming Technologies. WTT, for short, is promoting innovation to tackle environmental challenges. When it comes to water, it is both environmental and social, as WTT works within Brazil and Latin America amongst communities who lack proper sanitation and access to safe water. The communities, they have to accept that innovation can help them solve some of their long-standing issues. Once they recognize that, or once they accept that that is a fact, Then they tell us what their pains are. So they will tell us, you know, these are the challenges they face accessing water or these are the challenges they face accessing electricity. Or uh, if we're talking about agricultures, for example, uh, farm, small-scale farmers, they'll tell us these and that are the main issues I have over here. So we need the communities to be entirely integrated in the process. It's an ample partnership, let's say. We have communities, we have NGOs that work alongside the communities, we have uh, organizations that finance all of this. And then we bring the space of innovation and science into this. We call ourselves orchestrators, mm -hmm. yeah? Because we bring all the different parties together. We can connect those two spaces, yeah? The spaces of organizations working on, on the field with real problems, with real community problems, and the spaces of innovation and science. It's orchestration you're doing. What does it mean in real life? For example, we are running a program called Agua Mais, which means water plus. This is a program financed by Instituto Coca-Cola, which is a local uh, foundation of Coca-Cola. 
What we did, we went with these organizations to the field, visited communities. We visited perhaps 20, 30 communities. And we identified and prioritized what are the main issues these communities face. Few things can be considered more private with a glistening capital P than Coca-Cola. It is as private as it can get. With almost a quarter of the world's population consuming it daily, it is a symbol of American-style freedom, an emblem of individuality, a celebration of the self. And so, I was surprised to hear that behind the image I held in my mind, there is actually a person whose job is to give out the company's money to places where it would create an impact and change people's lives. Olga Reyes, Vice President for Public Affairs and Communication for the Coca-Cola Company in Latin America, finds these projects and NGOs who promote the change. All we do is find the people who know how to do this. How exactly do you come about it? You are a business and you have a certain agenda addressing this because you said it's both business smart and it is the right thing to do. How is the mechanism of working with NGOs? It actually has three stages. First stage is, for example, when you and I meet, is there anything we have in common? No. Are we going to be able to work together or like each other? Mm, probably not. Okay, let's give it a try. So we sit down and we say, okay, what do you have? Uh, what do you stand for? What do you want? And we, the Coca-Cola company, come and say, what do we want? What do we stand for? 99% of the time, we find out that we have common interests. And uh, we start from that. Then the third stage, which is the one that I like the most, we start realizing that you're a human being, I am a human being, and we are in this planet together. So let's make the most out of it. One of the things that are very important from the get-go is what I can call boundaries. Most of the time, those boundaries that we need to respect are those of the NGOs. The NGOs do not promote our products. They don't have to. They shouldn't. The NGOs have a goal that we can never intervene with. Never. Many of the way they do things, we can never, ever, ever cross that line. That is something that is non-negotiable. How uh, come? Because, uh, you know, I, I would assume that uh, a company with very deep pockets will be able to abuse its power over, you know, I'm holding the money, I'm holding the checkbook. You do exactly what you're told to do. But, you know... Um, I'm talking about the ones that we work with, mm -hmm. the Nature's Conservancy, Technoserve, WWF, Avina, the IDB. They have a name and they have a reputation and they can live with our money. They are happy to take our money and our resources and everything as long, as long as we comply with what they are stand for and their, their objectives and everything. So who's David and who's Goliath? Um, I don't know. I think we're all Davids here. We're all... And this is not a word. I see this as a, you have something that uh, I don't have, I have something you, you have. One of the things that um, we bring to the table is this business, business mental model. I think the NGOs, the ones that we work with, are moving towards a business mental model with metrics and deliverables and all that. To some extent, that dialogue between an NGO, how an NGO thinks and how a company thinks about business and about approaching this as a business priority has benefited 
the NGOs, and mostly it has benefited the programs that we have implemented. Truth be told, Coca-Cola came under quite a lot of fire in some regions of the world. Taken in account, the fact that Coca-Cola company is literally all over the world, you can find them in more than 200 countries, territories and political entities, more than there are member states in the UN, by the way, it is the best example of global outreach. You can't get more worldwide than this. To make their drinks, they use water from local resources. If you type Coca-Cola and India in a search engine, you will see it is not really a bed of roses. The company has more than 50 bottling plants in the country. However, in recent years, due to popular demand, amid allegations of pollution and over-extraction of water from local reservoirs, Coca-Cola had to cease production and shut down plants. As a result, alongside creating a more efficient process that will reduce the amount of water used to make their drinks, lowering it from roughly 3 liters of water per 1 liter of beverage to 1.7 liters per 1 liter of beverage today, the Coca-Cola company began programs of water replenishment, effectively putting back to the factory's immediate vicinity the same amount of water that was extracted for production. But in Olga Reyes's part of the world, the challenges are different. Central America doesn't need water replenishment programs because it rains a lot, eight months out of the year, in, in Costa Rica at least. Then I realized it doesn't matter how much it rains. What it matters is how much is it goes back to the, to the soil. And that is a different proposition because you need to create the conditions. We human beings do not realize are ignorant or something like that, do not realize that we need to protect the watersheds. And uh, so we started a work protecting the watersheds. Wasn't that professional at the time. Then um, our technical guys, our technical colleagues came on board and decided to, okay, we're going to do this professionally, how it should be done. And the Nature's Conservancy was the NGO who won. And we started contributing to the water funds. And uh, by contributing to that, they were protecting the watersheds. It can be done, but it, it requires knowing about the problem, having a very concrete goal about the solution, having the resources to do it, and you actually need a, an ID attached to this. You need someone who's responsible for this and whose objectives and pay will depend on this. It's like Meaning? it has to be on my business objectives. It has to be a business priority for our companies. Someone needs to be responsible. You mean companies, not only Coca-Cola, you mean any business in the world? Right now I'm talking about the Coca-Cola company and uh, our bottlers, the bigger Coca-Cola system, what we call. During all these years, what we have been very successful is in inviting other people and other companies and, and more and more people to join this movement. And I cannot impose on anybody, but it is a very strong invitation to tell people Guys, every single drop counts. It is the drop of water that we use in our house, important. But the water footprint that we can leave in our companies, very, very important. And what the government can do and what everybody collectively can do. So after marrying needs and funds and realizing that every solution should be tailor-made to suit the community it is designed to serve, I've asked for some examples. Andrei Wongczowski. So this is a very, very interesting model. It's called community water management. 
So imagine these are places which are disconnected from the public network. So typically they don't have any access to water at all. So they organize themselves and they formalize a local organization, typically an association. Then they make an agreement with the local water utility or with a local NGO that builds the treatment and distribution system. They build a system to treat water, they build the pipes, they deliver water house by house. So this might be financed by an NGO or in the case of Ceará, for example, is the water utility that builds the system. Once the system is built, there is an agreement and the operation, the maintenance of the system is passed over to the community, to the local association. So, so the local not, association... It's, it's not really BOT. Um, it's or a BOT not on really, a very small scale. On a very, scale. very small scale, yeah. And then the community selects among themselves an operator for the system who will then take care of the system. You're talking about a member of the community, yes. Of the community. So a member of the community is then trained by the, uh, the water utility or by uh, a specialized NGO in, into how you operate, how you maintain the system. Who pays for that? The community. So then each member of the community receives a water bill exactly like the water bill that you receive in your house. And it specifies how much the operator is being paid, how much energy was spent. Everything is in the bill plus a certain amount for the association itself to maintain itself and typically plus some amount for fixing the system if something breaks or replacing parts of the system, etc. The water kiosk model, it's basically um, decentralized water treatment units that fit in um, a room this size, so it's approximately um, 12 square meters. It's managed by a local entrepreneur. There's a machine to treat the water, to, to pump and treat the water, and then the entrepreneurs locally can sell it to the local populations. It means that you don't have a big infrastructure that you need to maintain and people still haul water in big plastic containers. You don't have a big infrastructure to maintain, yes, depending on the cases and depending on the, on the water kiosk operator. Um, people would just have like large um, jerry cans, for example, 20 liters bottles, all these kind of things that they can buy um, at the kiosk. Uh, in some cases in India, for example, we see people come in with their own receptacle and then they have, for example, a, a prepaid card that they just beep on the machine and then the water flows into the, the receptacle and they live with the water. You have different kind of these business models that are market-based. Isn't it problematic though? The fact that they sell the water, where does the money go to? To the operations. The goal of this is to have local maintenance of the system. For example, what we've seen in Africa, NGOs coming from Europe or from the United States digging a well and leaving because they run out of money. And then they come back two years later and the well is broken and they just dig another one 20 meters away. And then the pump breaks and then it starts again. If you don't have local mechanisms that are market-based, you cannot finance the, the maintenance of the service. Success will be determined by the level of inclusion of the community and local market-based solutions that take into account prevalent financial and cultural customs. Water, on-demand, safe-to-use and affordable, is a crucial factor in growth, says Olga Reyes. When we went to those communities and they say, we make $10, the water tank comes and they want $3, $4, we cannot pay for that. If a community wants to develop, wants to take the next step, it has to have access to water. So it's, it's, it's critical. I could say the same about electricity. We don't work in electricity, but when we take water to communities, usually those communities have had recent access to electricity, and it's also a, like a before and an after. 
And I could say that also communications is like a quantum leap. If communities have access to electricity, water and communications, they are ready to be unleashed. We began this episode with the notion of PPP, public-private partnerships. As mentioned, it is a framework more than it is a recipe. The key to success is inclusion. Private does not necessarily mean big, for-profit organizations, nor an individual. Public can be both a government as well as a community of 14 houses in rural Brazil. PPP is a world of facilitators and enablers. Andrei Vonkchowski. Communities have faced numerous problems. No single organization can just come in and solve them all. Different organizations doing different things. So there are organizations that are focused on sanitation. There are organizations that are focused on access to water. Or other organizations that focus on access to electricity. So we talk to the communities. They identify this is my main issue. And we are trying to give them the tools to solve those issues. Yeah? Ideally, in the future, we will have funding. We will have people. And we will still have uh, the openness of the communities to come back and you know, solve the next problem and then the next problem. So that's our dream. Rochi Kemka. What's utopia for you? What's utopia for me from a water perspective? One is transparency. In being able to talk about water without any hesitation and having sharing of information, data, knowledge, solutions. Because, you know, we're, we're always trying to reinvent the wheel. There are countries that have solved issues to wastewater, to water use efficiency uh, in agriculture and other sectors. Um, and it's, you know, why are we not being able to replicate that around the world? So creating these, the mechanism, the platforms, the fora for stakeholders to discuss, deliberate, and feel that, you know, it's, it's an open environment to share knowledge and good practices. Uh, I think that's one of the most important factors. Water is everybody's business, effectively. Yeah, you cannot exclude anyone from the dialogue. Creating transparency as, as the first mechanism to be able to move down that path. The second is, and linked to transparency, is collaboration then. Being able to speak to a politician or to a bureaucrat when things are going well, as well as when things are not going well. And being able to discuss with them how do you come up with new solutions um, and fostering these, these models of collaboration across different stakeholders. So that's the second. And then the third, uh, which actually links back to the first on, on transparency, uh, is monitoring. Because you we are have, an economist at the end of the day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah guilty as charged. Um, because if you don't monitor, you know, there's, there's so much investment going into the sector. Where is bang for your buck? Where are you creating the biggest value, uh, not just in economic terms, but socially speaking? Are you providing irrigation services, for instance, to richer farmers and excluding tail and poorer farmers? How do you look at equity in the context of water allocation and water rights? So, you know, monitoring also has a role to play in that because you don't want projects and programs that create unintended externalities um, with all the right intentions, just because certain sections or certain areas uh, have been excluded. At the end of the day, says Olga Yes, we are in a better place. Are we done? Not quite. Will it ever be enough? Of course not. It's not a picture, she says. It is a movie. Today, 
Many more people see water as an item high on their agenda. And it doesn't matter what it is that you do, she says. There are still simple truths that you just can't beat. We were a bunch of people a few years ago. But during all these years, more people have come on board from many different trades. And one of the things that we have accomplished to do or try to do and things that are happening here is that we are raising awareness and we are creating a movement. It does take a village. So if I have managed to inspire one person by this conversation, my job is done. Raise awareness, bring more people, create a tidal wave of this because things will not change if we don't realize we have to change, if we don't bring more people and if we don't actually do something to support that change. I work for the Coca-Cola company and I am very proud of, of everything I do. But when I die, when I die, what really, really matters, really matters to me is the people that I have been able to help during my time in Coca-Cola. Do you need to be in Coca-Cola to help people? I don't think so. It is paying forward. It is what makes people happy. So the invitation is not only about water. It is do your part. Be the human being you are here to be. Help as many people as possible without expecting anything and leave a better environment, better planet for the next guy, for your children. Someone said, we didn't inherit this earth from our ancestors. We have it on loan for the next generation. So let's do the best thing we can do. And that's it. Waterline is brought to you by Israel Newtek and is a PI Media production. Produced by PI Media. Mm-hmm.